Scripture lesson this morning, I'll be reading from John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 12 through 15. I have much more to say to you, but you can't handle it now. However, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own, but will say whatever he hears and proclaim to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and proclaim it to you. Everything that God has is mine. And that's why I said that the Spirit takes what is mine and will proclaim it to you. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. In the book Circle of Quiet, Madeline Langal repeats Dorothy Sayer's story of a Japanese man who is intently listening to a Christian who is working hard to explain the concept of the Christian doctrine on the Trinity. The Japanese man is very puzzled. Honorable Father, in broken English he says, very good. Honorable Son, very good. Honorable Bird, I do not understand at all. Madeline says, very few of us understand honorable bird, except to acknowledge that without the Spirit's power and grace, nothing would be written, nothing beautiful would have been painted or composed or felt deeply, no telling what wouldn't have been carried out. To say anything beyond this about the creative process is like pulling all the petals off of a flower when one is going to try to analyze it, ending up having destroyed the flower. Now on the secular calendar, as we've noted, today is Father's Day, but on the Christian calendar, today is Trinity Sunday, and it's one of those Sundays when the preacher has to be careful not to pull all the petals off the flower while attempting to analyze the flower itself. It's a task that is much easier said than done. After all, this is the only doctrinal feast day to make its way onto the church's calendar. It's the only Feast Day, which doesn't celebrate a person like Saint's Day or an event like Christmas or Easter or like last week, Pentecost, in the entire church year. And as I said earlier, many a preacher has set out to try their best to explain the doctrine of the Trinity only to get lost in the theological weeds never to have been heard from again. So the doctrine of the Trinity is a reminder that sometimes... There are no cut-and-dried, black-and-white, easy, simplistic answers when it comes to explaining life's greatest mysteries. The concept of God expressed in three persons, Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit, is a celebration of the triumph of the mysteries over and against simple, pat, little, Sunday school, children's type of answers. The doctrine of the Trinity however, is a metaphor, my dear people. And every metaphor at some point has difficulties making it from one person's imagination and their attempt to explain something complex using only the word picture into another person's mind or imagination where they're trying to discern what has been shared with them and paint the word picture for themselves, never having physically seen the picture at all. You get what I'm saying. There's a lot of room for error and interpretation and imagination. The doctrine of the Trinity is the reminder 
that at the central metaphor for God, for Christians, there is a diversity encapsulated within a unity, and as some of the ancients concluded, complete in its numeric simplicity and integrity. Diversity has different functions in life depending on the different contexts. Have you noticed that? Diversity, for example, biological diversity is nature's way of preserving, creating, and perhaps causing life to flourish. But diversity when it comes to race or class or sexual orientation or gender expression or even in religious circles can sometimes feel like a threat to many people who tend to be driven by fear and scarcity rather than by a deep appreciation for the beauty of differences. Sociologists, uh, sociologists, let me say that again, tell us that in early American towns years ago, the richest person and the poorest person would never hardly live more than 200 yards apart from one another. They often, in fact, the richest and the poorest people in any given town would have to walk by one another's houses during the typical course of a normal day. They were part of the same community, and they were connected in a way that now we only can try to imagine. You see, today, things are much more separated between rich and poor in any given town. That's just one example of the ways that we're separated. How different it is when rich and poor are separated by miles and miles of real estate and then fenced or gated off from one another. How different is it when we don't share the same schools or the same hospitals or the same churches? When we don't experience the diversity of class or race in our day-to-day existence, we start to lose touch with one another and the social fabric which once bound us together begins to unravel at the seams, oftentimes without anyone noticing until it's too late. But achieving theological diversity can be just as difficult as any other kind of diversity. Perhaps it's even more difficult because when we're dealing with theological diversity, with what we, we're dealing with things that people believe to be sacred and eternal and truth with a capital T, and, and we're not all that open to other approaches or alternative approaches or differences sometimes even in our own churches. Uh, many people want their own religious views, you know, or their own religious beliefs to be pure, unchangeable, set in stone. Some of us want to believe our particular corner on God also shows the cor- is the corner on the market and that everyone else's beliefs, well, they're just a little off, a little less perfect than our own. And somehow the loudest voices in Christian circles these past 150 years or so have elevated a very literal understanding of God, a very literal and yet segregated understanding of the Trinity, of the Bible, of theology, and they've made literalism to be somehow, culturally, the highest form of critique or the best way of thinking, when in reality this isn't the case at all. Literal understandings of things, sometimes it'd be the equivalent of Sharif, for example, asking me to, quote, swing by the store on the way home. And then me, on the way home, stopping at the city park closest to our favorite grocery store, finding the playground, 
climbing onto a swing and swinging for a while before I go home. And I come home and I don't have the bread. It would be like her saying, well, where's the bread that I asked you to swing by the store and get? I said, oh, well, I just heard you say swing by the store. So I went to the park and got in a swing and I swung. The most literal interpretation of doctrine or theology or the Bible often, much like that example, leaves everyone starving and confused, maybe even a little irritated. The Reverend Richard Bauer writes, The fear and insecurity that draws people into rigid propositional statements about God and creation blinds them to the reality that all theological reflection flows from particular contexts that shape how we understand God and the divine work among us. Now, for Christians, the Trinity is the primary symbol of community that holds together by containing diversity within itself. The Trinity is an attempt to express an ineffable truth using a symbol, a metaphor, for the different aspects and activities of God. And by the way, if you haven't noticed, the Trinity makes for some very suspicious math. God, three persons, how does that add up? The Cappadocian theologians who included Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, all theologians writing in the 4th and 5th centuries, they viewed the number one as no number at all because it had no diversity. It possessed no discernible strength. Now, isn't that interesting? The number two was weak as well because then it was only dualism. At best, it could only be two sides of the same coin. But they considered the number three to be the first, quote, real number in that it had an innate stability, a complexity, and a diversity, if you will, which made it durable and strong. Now, I'm hinting at it here, and I'm going off the notes. It's risky. But if you haven't noticed, the word Trinity is not in the Bible itself. This is a concept that came to us through these founders of our faith, and it is one that has deeply influenced our thinking. Now, Trinity, though the word doesn't appear there, when you understand God in this form and you go back and you read things in the, into the Scripture, you begin to go, oh, well, they must have been talking about the Trinity. And I don't think it's a harmful concept. I think it's quite helpful, so long as we keep it in context. And the Trinity is, is not the only symbol of diversity for Christians. After all, the Bible itself, with not one, but two creation accounts in the book of discipline, and not one gospel in the New Testament, but four gospels, where each one is enriched by its strikingly different approach to telling the story of Jesus and his ministry, symbolizes unity, but not uniformity. Now, these multiple attestations to the truth, they help us to just barely begin to comprehend the complexity of the man we know as Jesus of Nazareth, this person of history, and also the mystery of the incarnate Christ. He can't be verified by one singular lone witness. There were too many stories, too many miracles, too many things to take in. It required several witnesses, people who would be willing to share their own stories, now, theologians throughout the centuries have found the doctrine of the Trinity is very difficult to discuss. And some of the most creative theology done in the last 50 years has been done in this theological neighborhood of what we call 
the Trinity. But looking back even further, St. Patrick is said to have explained the Trinity to the, to the Celts by using a shamrock. Alice used an apple this morning, but he used a shamrock. Three individual leaves and yet one plant. Augustine said the Trinity was best understood as the lover, the beloved, and the love that exists between them. Tertullian, arguably the most, how shall I say, curmudgeonly the, uh, theologian of the early church, waxed poetic as he used the metaphor of the Trinity as a plant, with the Father as the deep root, the Son as the shoot that breaks forth into the world, and the Spirit as the force which spreads beauty and fragrance on the earth. Pretty impressive for a curmudgeon. Much closer to our own time, Contemporary Brazilian theologian Leonardo Boff helps us understand the Trinity by describing it as a primal community, just and equal within the reality that is God and therefore a model for human society. In some ways, the Trinity is also the first community, the model for how we are called to connect to one another inseparably and yet without blurring the lines of our distinctive beauties that we offer to one another to connect with one another without prejudice, without inequality, without competition, and always with love. Now, it's not that Trinitarian theology or a Trinitarian God is too complicated to understand. It's finally that a Trinitarian God is too complex to be managed and manipulated by all of us who think we know better than God. You see, we see all kinds of issues in black and white, but we live our lives in color, don't we? The complexity of the Trinity means that spirit and flesh live inextricably bound to one another. It means that the human and the divine are connected in a sort of eternal dance. We're not separated from God or from one another as we might think sometimes. We are all, in fact, connected deeply, meaningfully, profoundly. In fact, the early theologians used the Greek word Parachoresis, meaning peri, meaning around, and chorisis, meaning the infinite dance with the God in which we all join hands and create one great circle. And as we dance to the center of life where God resides, we all move closer and closer to one another. Now, by this point, uh, you've done a pretty good job listening. I, I, I've been watching you, but maybe some of you are starting to tune in to WIIFM. What's in it for me? So does this strange math, this divinely mysterious math, have any actual relevance for our lives? Just what would it mean, I wonder, to our own faith to see the possibility of God in the greatest possible, most diverse situations, which would necessarily include God being present in the most fractured and broken places, not only in our lives, but in our world. Imagine God present in both the high and the low. Imagine God present not just when you get that wonderful parking spot at Walmart, but when there's none to be found. What would it mean to discover God in the abandoned and the forgotten and the mostly broken places of our lives and realize it's the diversity of God that makes it possible for God to be present in those places as well? What would it mean for us to discover God in the midst of our mistakes, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our depressions, our anxieties, our illnesses, and even our deaths?
Well, for starters, perhaps we would find a God who is close and walking with us instead of a God who feels distant and judgmental. Augustine once told students who studied the doctrine on the Trinity, lest you become discouraged, know that when you love, you know more about who God is than you could ever know with your intellect. I find that greatly comforting. We may have varying abilities when it comes to using our minds to think theologically or ponder the mysteries of the universe, but all of us, my friends, have the ability to love others and to do it deeply and sincerely. Now, today is Father's Day, as we've mentioned, on the secular calendar, and and some of us have or, or did have amazing biological fathers. Some of us may have had fathers we didn't know or were barely involved. And many of us live our lives with conflicting emotions, realizing that there were some great memories along the way with our fathers, but also some painful ones. Still others may have had no dad at all, or for that matter, didn't have any type of conventional family setup. But chances are you have had or do have someone else in your life that you could count on and maybe even someone who got you through those rough patches when you were younger. It might not have been your biological dad, or maybe it was. Now, the Trinity is kind of like the universe's way, I think, of of making sure that for those of us who feel more inspired relating to a giant creator, that way of relating is available in the three-person God. For those of us who can feel more easily inspired looking to the example of another human being just like us who taught and yet did incredible things and transcended what it means to be human, we can look to Jesus. For those of us who look within in order to be inspired, we have the Spirit. We might even love them all. But unlike a human family where we tend to feel shame for having favorites, We don't have to shame ourselves for having favorites, thanks to the expression we know as the Trinity. For in this, in these mysteries, in this diverse mystery, God relates and receives all of our feelings, regardless of which avenue or expression of the Trinity we most closely relate to. And we don't have to feel guilt or shame or even the pressure to know how it's all hardwired or how it all works or what is the meaning of all this mystery. I don't waste a single moment sweating the doctrine of the Trinity because I've learned that even when I don't have things figured out, I can still lean into the mystery of the unity of all things, realizing that God is not so much for me a being separate in time and space, so much as God for me is a unity where all things come together. A place where one plus one doesn't necessarily equal two in this mystery. It equals three or maybe even more. Nor does one plus one really just equal one in this way of uh, this divine way of conceiving the universe. We may never have it all figured out, but we give thanks for this divinely mysterious math. Amen.